We're in Ezra chapter 6, if you'd like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. Ezra 6, verse 13. The topic, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah encouraged the Israelites as they worked to complete their stone and timber temple. The title of our message, The Stone Temple Prophets. It's appropriate. I don't even know what that means. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for for being um, our redeemer, for coming in the flesh and living a sinless life and dying on the cross, rising from the dead. We believe that your word is powerful and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce between our soul and spirit and really minister to us. And we also believe that it never returns void. And so today we pray that you would uh, have your way in our hearts, speaking to us about your love and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. If I never hear the phrase, eye of the tiger again, it will be too soon. Or the song for that matter. I concede that it is iconic and like every true Italian-American, I love the Rocky franchise. Even at its worst, it's great. Did you know that both Newt Gingrich and Mitt Romney used that song on the campaign trail? Uh, Newt Gingrich was sued because he used it without permission. Do you know the original band that played the song? Anybody know? Survivor, Survivor yeah. <laughs> Sorry that you know that, but anyway. <laughs> Survivor, yeah, it didn't even, man, that guy didn't even hesitate. It was like right there. Mention Eye of the Tiger one more time, you're going down, Pensiero, but anyway. Just for fun, I googled Eye of the Tiger sermons. To my dismay, there's a lot of them. (laughs) And what's worse, they're not just from the 1980s. One was preached in 2014, and it began with this stunning uh, introduction. God is looking for men with one trait, the Eye of the Tiger. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. Gene, keep calm and give the Bible study. (laughs) Eye of the Tiger worked when it was first used in Rocky III. Enamored by the world, Rocky lost his way. So Apollo Creed returned him to his humble roots where he recaptured what he had lost. In our verses, the exiles who had returned to Jerusalem had come back in humility to their roots. They recaptured what they had lost. They completed building the temple and dedicated it with a joyous celebration And they kept the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread as prescribed by Moses in the law of God. Not tigers, but lambs were predominant. 400 lambs were among the 712 animals sacrificed at the temple's dedication. One lamb was slain for each household for the Passover. After 70 years captive in Babylon, after 21 years constructing the temple, they were back to where they belonged. If you are in Christ, there are going to be times you get off course. It may be a full-on backslide into sin. It may be slight but nonetheless significant detour off the straight and narrow path. It may even involve works of diligent service to the Lord, but ones that are fleshly rather than spirit-empowered. You're going to want to get back. And that's going to be our theme as I organize my comments around two points. Number one, get back to celebrating the joy of your salvation. And number two, get back to celebrating the joy of your Savior. Let's take a look at the joy of our salvation in verses 13 through 18. Getting off track is an expression I can live with. 
Apparently, getting off track was a common problem among the first generation of Christians. We typically uh, hold the first church, the uh, first century church, in high regard. No reason not to. Uh, but if you really stop and think about it, all of the letters to the churches in the New Testament were somewhat corrective because they had gone off track. And Jesus, when he wrote to the seven churches of the Revelation there in the area of Turkey, uh, all of the letters were critical or condemning, condemning rather, except for the one to the suffering church at Smyrna. And so they had the same problems we have. And getting off track was one. The Apostle Paul said to the Galatians, you were doing so well. Who caused you to stop following the truth? The church in Ephesus started well, but Jesus wrote to them saying, remember therefore from where you have fallen. There are multiple exhortations in the New Testament to awake from spiritual slumber, to remain sober and alert and watchful. Others tell you to complete the race that you've begun and not get uh, pulled down by weights that beset you. Now we're told of the return to exiles in verse 16 and 22 that they returned to joy. We will know we have returned if we have joy. And so verse 13, then Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar Bosnai and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. The local Persian authorities wanted proof that the Jews had permission from the government of Persia to rebuild their temple. They, they wanted them to produce their building permit, as it were. A letter of inquiry was sent to King Darius. A search of the archives yielded the previous decree of King Cyrus, giving the Jews permission and funding to return and to build. So in verse 14, the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. They prospered through the prophesying. What a great standalone line that is. And we can have a whole Bible study on how we prosper by looking at the word of God and its prophetic aspect uh, of speaking forth the word of God to our hearts. But I imagine Haggai and Zechariah going around and encouraging the workers with the word of God. They would punch in every morning and determine where they were going to go to the timber section or to the stone section or to the interior workers. And they would move around either directly prophesying or repeating their prophecies or just encouraging the folks by the sense of their presence. What a great joy it would be to you as a worker on this temple to know that two of God's mighty prophets were there speaking for and forth the word of God. It created a kind of a soundtrack or a playlist that encouraged their joy. A lot of you do that. You have your earbuds uh, and your iPod or your iPhone or whatever phone you prefer, and you listen to music or podcasts or whatever while you're doing your work. And so they didn't have that technology, but they did have these guys going around doing something similar. Hobby Lobby, not my favorite store. It's a guy thing, especially when you buy fabric. You have to get the bolt of fabric and bring it over and get somebody's attention. They're all real nice at Hobby Lobby. And then they do the unrolling of the bolt. Measure it. Measure it. And they're in no hurry. No hurry whatsoever. Then they cut it up that little groove. And then there's a certain way of folding it that I could never figure out. They fold it down to the size of a dime. 
And then you're not done. You're still not done because they have to tag it and put the pin through. And that always seems to take about five more minutes and, and stuff. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know you're nowhere near being done because your wife is in a whole other section. <laughs> the acrylic paints. every shade known to man in three or four different varieties. And, and then the, every time you, I think they take pictures of me because every time I go in there, they've moved what I found last time. I've, I will admit I've been to Hobby Lobby alone. It's a frightening thing. It's a scary, lonely feeling. But I'll tell you this, I love their soundtrack. It's mostly old Maranatha music that reminds me of when I first got saved. They're songs that we can't sing anymore. They're just so old. They would, they would break the church if we started singing them. But no, so I'm walking around frustrated, looking for whatever I'm looking for. And then I find myself saying, don't you know that it's time to praise the Lord in the sanctuary of his Holy Spirit. And then it's, it's really sweet. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I, one of the gal, I'll mention this, it was kind of a cute story. I had my jacket on that says Calvary Chapel. And one of the checkers says, oh, you go to Calvary Chapel? I go, yeah. And then she Real sheepishly, she pulled her shirt up and she, says, she showed me a dove tattoo. She goes, I used to go to Calvary Chapel in Lake Elsinore. I go, oh, with John Milhouse? How did you know that? And then the next time I went in, she goes, are you the pastor? <laughs> and I said, well, that depends. Will you come if I am? And so anyway... I'm not saying you can't listen to secular music. I want to say that you shouldn't listen to talk radio, but that's not going to help. But anyway, <laughs> I'll challenge you to at least get back to listening to more praise music and more preaching. Uh, probably if you got saved later in life, when you first got saved, uh, you were listening to a lot of praise music and a lot of worship music. And now it's easier than ever. You can listen to our praise music uh, on the computer and download it and all that. But so I'm not saying you can't do that. We don't, we don't play Holy Spirit here in the lives of people. Listen to whatever you want that glorifies God. Uh, but just hey, say, hey, uh, let me listen to some of this old praise music I've got laying around that I have. And you know what? It just puts you in a better frame. Music is a powerful medium. And it just puts you in a better frame of mind. It, it, it makes going to Hobby Lobby palatable. And so imagine what it could do for the rest of your life. So Ezra mentioned both God and the Persian kings. It reminds us God superintends history to, ex, uh, to ensure uh, the outcome he has promised in his word will surely come to pass, but that he is able to do it without violating free will. He is that sovereign. Artaxerxes belongs to the next century. We haven't even gotten to him yet. Ezra mentions him here thematically, not chronologically. God turned the hearts of all these kings to keep his plan on track. Verse 15, now the temple was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. The temple was completed 21 years after it was begun, just in case you thought your contractor was slow. Uh, just next time you want to blow up at your contractor, uh, just something in your mind will whisper, the second temple. And you think, okay, it hasn't been 21 years. It looks like it's going to be 21 years, but it uh, hasn't been. Uh, I'm thinking of a couple of projects that, that are going on 20 years. But anyway, here's an interesting tidbit for you scholars. It's likely that the completion of the temple is the event that marks the end of the 70-year prophecy given by Jeremiah and discovered by Daniel. I mention this because scholars argue uh, that from the time 
of the captivity to the end of the captivity isn't really 70 years. And so they have all kinds of theories as to why uh, we're a few years short or a few years over, depending on how you look at it. But it's interesting, Solomon's temple, the first temple, was destroyed in 586 B.C. The second temple was completed in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, which was 70 years later in 516 B.C. And so it's likely that God, when he says the captivity will last 70 years, we take that to mean their time in Babylon, but he was dating it from the time between the temples, when sacrifice ended with the destruction of the first temple until the second temple was completed. And so that solves all of that uh, supposed Bible difficulties. You ever you know, seen those books? Bible difficulties solved. And uh, this is one that um, is easily solved. So verse 16, then the children of Israel, priests and the Levites and the rest of the descendants of the captivity, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Reporting on the dedication, the writer could have chosen any number of descriptive words, but Ezra settled on the one most appropriate, joy. All of their hopes and dreams, all of their many emotions, everything they felt could be summarized as joy. It's hard to describe or to define our joy in Christ. One author put it like this. He said, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Uh, Used to be we define joy, and maybe you have this written down somewhere hanging in your house. I'm sure Hobby Lobby has this on a (laughs) graphic somewhere. Jesus first, other second, you last. And you think, well, that's joy. Not really because that's something that we can do to produce joy. It's an effort on our part. I have to remember to put Jesus first and others second and, you know, that kind of a thing. Joy is actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's produced by the Spirit as we abide in Christ. And so I like this definition because what we're to do is to see Christ in the Word. We're to be people of the Word and see God as He reveals His nature and character. And then we're to have a worldview that applies that so that we understand what God is doing in the world and in our individual worlds and lives. And then uh, we are able to have that Holy Spirit produce joy uh, regardless of our circumstances as a result of that. And it is that good feeling in our soul that we belong to the Lord and that um, we are above our circumstances and not below them and that uh, nothing can rob us of that joy. So it's it's a good definition. Verse 17, they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Commentators make a big deal of how much grander the dedication of the first temple was. There were something like 100 times more animals sacrificed. You couldn't accuse Solomon of not being extravagant. But at the same time, on a practical level, there were simply fewer Israelites to offer sacrifices in the second temple period. They didn't kill animals for no reason. They didn't say, hey, how many animals can we slaughter today? Uh, you know, as an, uh, they, they killed the appropriate amount uh, for the uh, people sacrificing. And spiritually, grandeur doesn't matter. You can't build a house for God anyway, not really. Uh, when David wanted to build a temple, God said, yeah, first of all, you're not gonna do it. I'm going to have your son do it, but where is the house you will build for me? I'm God. I inhabit the heavens, you know, that kind of a thing. 
And so, yes, God wanted there to be a temple, a tabernacle, a temple on earth where he could meet with man, but it was never intended to be the house of God. It's not like a genie's bottle where the genie is confined in there and can't move out. God is, of course, transcendent. And so the thing that matters is his presence. Today, we are his temple, both our individual bodies that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and our gathering of believers as the body of Christ. The building is of no real consequence unless it somehow takes away from his glory. And so all of our decisions ought to take into account what will point us to God, what he has done for us, and not what we've done for him. You know, I, I, lots of churches, they'll have a plaque, like you'd be sitting there right now and in front of you there'd be a little plaque on the chair, this chair donated and dedicated to Gene Pensiero. And, uh, you know, I guess that's all right, but really that takes away my uh, reward in heaven because now everybody knows that I did that. And it's basically saying, I did this for God. And I think it takes away from the fact that God did so much for us. And so we, we can have nice, and we should have nice, hospitable, clean, working facilities. Whatever God has given us, we should take good care of. But we don't need grandeur that will take anybody's eyes off of the Lord and put it onto that. No crystal cathedrals, if you guys have been around long enough to remember the crystal cathedral down in, uh, was it Anaheim? Yeah, I think so, uh, with Dr. Robert Schuler. I mean, a beautiful edifice, uh, but certainly, you know, it was one of those things. You, you don't want to have the kind of building where people come up and say, wow, what an incredible building you built for God, uh, because that, that, that's exactly what you do not want to do. Verse 16, they assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And so after the dedication, the daily sacrifices and offerings kicked in. It might have been a letdown after such a big celebration. The mundane day-to-day stuff can get monotonous. It shouldn't. How can it seem monotonous to be in a relationship with the living God? How can we grow bored serving him? Well, here are a few ways. First, and perhaps foremost, sin. Nothing like sin to rob you of your joy. For one thing, sin grieves the Holy Spirit, so he can't produce the fruit of joy. They can't exist simultaneously. Second, suffering and trials in general. We initially think our troubles to be strange and out of character. Without a solid theology of suffering, joy immediately goes out the window. The writers to the New Testament had to say, hey, don't think that it's something strange when you fall into various trials. They said that because we do think it's strange. And if we don't have a perspective on it by looking at Christ in the word and in the world, then we're not going to have joy. We're going to lose our joy and just be depressed and bummed out about what we're going through. What do I mean by a theology of suffering? Rather than go into it, I'll just illustrate, and I think you guys will understand this. The same night Jesus told his disciples, I have told you these things so that my joy will be in you and that your joy may be complete, he also said, in the world you will have tribulation. That was the night before he was crucified. And so Jesus says, I want you to have my joy. My joy will be in you. The kind of joy I have right now as I'm going to the cross, as I'm about to be crucified for you. That kind of joy. And then he says, and guess what, guys? In the world, you also are going to have tribulation. And so it establishes that you need to understand that joy and suffering can coexist. And in fact, they need to 
especially the joy part when you're going through suffering. Joy is what brings us above our circumstances. There's the old pulpit story about the guy, you know, he runs into his friend and his friend says, well, you know, you've been going through a hard time. How you doing? And the guy says, well, I'm doing pretty well under the circumstances. And the guy says, what are you doing living under there? You need to be above your circumstances with joy. Over the years, I've come to the conclusion that neither sin or suffering is the major joy killer. Self-righteousness and self-effort are two things often overlooked. I quoted the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians. They'd been born again by grace through faith. Certain legalistic teachers called Judaizers because they came out of a Judaistic background. They came and convinced them that they must also keep the law of Moses. It was an appeal to their self-righteousness as opposed to the righteousness of Christ. So Paul said, are you foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? A couple of things today that are a version of this self-righteousness. There are groups that tell you that if you're not water baptized, you're not saved. And there are other groups that tell you if you don't worship God on Saturday, on this, what they call the Sabbath, you're not saved. And so you get saved, and then these people come along. They're not Judaizers, they're Sabbatarians or they're Baptist, uh, you know, Baptistry people. Uh, I just made that up because I don't know what they are. But uh, anyway, they come along and they say, oh yeah, you think you're saved. You receive Christ. You've been born again, maybe. But until you're baptized, you're not going to heaven. And until you keep uh, the Sabbath, you can't go to heaven. And that's a form of self-righteousness. There are others, of course, but that's the idea that I can do something to make myself pleasing to God. Jesus gives me my righteousness. What about self-effort? You see it in the church at Ephesus. I quoted Jesus telling them that they had fallen. But before he said that, he said that they had many good works. He described them in a way any church would love to be described. And so they weren't running back to the law of Moses to be self-righteous, but they were doing everything in the energy of the flesh. They weren't being led by the Holy Spirit. They were, making, they were running the church almost like a business, you might say. Now, we want to run the church with proper business principles, but it isn't a business. We need to be led by the Lord uh, and, and know what our focus is and what our direction is and those kinds of things. And so just because something is good and a good work doesn't mean we ought to be doing it. Uh, this is something that frustrates individuals because they say, hey, Uh, why aren't we doing this, this, or this? Or why don't we support this group? Do you know how many groups there are that you could potentially support in terms of missions and missionaries and things like that? Thousands, maybe tens of thousands. And and so, you know, we have to be led by the Spirit. And so a lot of churches, they get away from that. Everything is just, you know, logical. And this is the, you know, we don't want to do this over here. I remember... One time, uh, one of our elders, I'm glad he was wrong, uh, but he said we were trying to sell our piece of property that we had bought, the five acres over there on Glacier and uh, whatever street it is, Fargo. And uh, he said, what if somebody, what if God put it on our heart to just give it away? And my first thought was, well, he's not going to do that because <laughs> so, we're going to sell it first. But anyway, uh, but that's the kind of thing. You know, you would never do that you know, in your business, but you say, oh, let's just give that away. But, but you may do it in the church. And so we want to be spirit-led. And we didn't give it away, by the way, but uh, maybe we should have, but nobody wanted it. <laughs> Whether your joy was lost to something obvious or something subtle, you need to get back to the joy of your salvation. When the Jews dedicated the second temple... 
with all of the animal sacrifices, it was a reminder of what God did to provide salvation. He promised in the Garden of Eden to come as a man, die for the sins of the whole world, to be the savior of the whole world, especially those who believe. Each sacrificed lamb pointed to the coming of Jesus as the final lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The joy of your salvation involves the assurance you are saved. You've been born again with your name written in the book of life, never to be blotted out. You could be raptured at any moment, but since that is unpredictable, you might die. But that way you know you're going to be absent from your body in death and present with the Lord immediately. It's knowing that everything in your life is being worked together for your ultimate good because Jesus promised he would complete the work he started in you, which is nothing short of you being made into his image. It is trusting that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you where you will be reunited with your believing loved ones and where you will enjoy an eternity of love and bliss. Whether you're in sin or suffering or being self-righteous or relying on self-effort, recognize it, repent, return to joy, a joy the Bible says is unspeakable and full of glory. Now let's talk about the joy of your Savior, beginning in verse 19 where we read, and the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Centuries earlier, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. We studied the book of Exodus recently, so you should be familiar with this. After sending nine plagues upon the Egyptians, the tenth and final plague was the death of the firstborn. You'd be saved if you killed a lamb and put its blood on your doorpost. The angel of the Lord would see that blood as your substitute. That lamb died in your place, and the angel of the Lord passed over your house, and you lived and were delivered. I've already mentioned that Jesus is the final lamb whose death on the cross saves all who trust in him. John the Baptist introduced him as the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It's the favorite title for Jesus in the book of the Revelation. Paul the Apostle even says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Christ is our Passover. Now, that means a lot of different things, but it certainly means that he is the final Passover lamb and that there is no more sacrifice after his death on the cross. Verse 20, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. They slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. They celebrated their first Passover in the new temple. How cool was that? To be among that crowd was something special. Many of you were here when we first moved in, the first Sunday we moved into the building. How special was that? It was just fun. I mean, if you weren't here, you, you, you just can't be here. Uh, you couldn't know about it and stuff. I mean, and, and so, you know, there are times that are great in our lives that, that we should celebrate. Now, we do not celebrate the feasts of Israel. They're not for us. Observing them is a step backward into legalism, Judaism, self-righteousness. We can learn about Jesus by studying the feast without observing them. We, we don't need to go to a Passover Seder or live in booths outside of our house in order to understand these things. While I'm here, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's a good one. Um, Christians are generally pretty excited about Israel rebuilding their temple in Jerusalem. Now, we know because Jesus said and Daniel said and others have indicated there will be a third temple built uh, for the last days, and it'll be prominent in the Great Tribulation. But let's step back for a minute and, and, and be realistic about what we know. God sent Jesus Christ, the final lamb, died for the sins of the world, rose from the dead, 
told the first century Jews, don't offer any more sacrifices, that temple that those Jews are going to rebuild and offer sacrifice in, that's not something that God's excited about. That's not something God is asking them to do in order to get saved. And in fact, as the tribulation progresses, their temple will be defiled. And finally, at the end of the tribulation, the Bible says the Jews will look upon Jesus whom they have pierced. And so uh, I'm ambivalent about building the temple. I'm certainly not going to donate towards rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem because it's not a place that God is going to inhabit during the tribulation. We are not to go back to ritual animal sacrifice. Not us, not the Jews. Jews need to get saved. They don't need to offer lambs. They need to come to the lamb. Verse 21. Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. What a terminology. The filth of the nations. Like what? Well, how about infant sacrifice? They're talking about the promised land. And I didn't know this. Let me quote this. It's from an archaeological website. Very interesting. Put together the biblical evidence, the evidence of multiple highly regarded ancient historians, the archaeological evidence, and the conclusion becomes overwhelming and inescapable. The Canaanites really did practice child sacrifice. Human sacrifice was widespread among many cultures in ancient times, but infant sacrifice was relatively unknown outside of Canaanite civilization. The deliberate murder of infant children was a pronounced feature of Canaanite religion. The Bible does not exaggerate the crimes of the Canaanites. And so the land of Canaan, the promised land before Israel went and claimed it and cleansed it, they, in, in all the world, archaeologically, are noted for infant sacrifice. It is a particularly heinous crime. And so the next time somebody says, oh, why did God have to wipe out all of those people? That's just the tip of a very deep iceberg of absolute wickedness that these people were involved with. And that's why when you get into the land, I want you to kill the men and the women and the children and all of their animals because they are all completely corrupted. And so it was a terrible thing. Some of the more recent liberal abortion legislation proposed puts our generation in a position worse than the Canaanites, I think. USA Today reporting on proposed legislation in Virginia said, and I quote, Democrats calmly described their ghoulish plans to murder babies as they are being delivered and afterward. Uh, BioEdge, which reports on medical ethics, posted a story titled, After Birth Abortion is Already in uh, Legal in the Netherlands. And, and so we, um, our whole planet, as it were, is kind of like one huge Canaan when it comes to this idea of, of murdering infants. Somebody posted this morning that the single largest cause of death in the world is abortion, 42 million abortions last year. And, and so... Uh, when you want to talk about the filth of the nations, uh, I think we're there. They celebrated together with all who had separated themselves. Anyone from any tongue or tribe or nation could be saved. God has never been willing that any should perish. We just talked about him wiping out whole Canaanite civilizations, but there are examples like Rahab in Jericho and others of people who got saved because they trusted the God of Israel. And, and you know, the Lord wants to bring people to salvation, first by creation speaking to them, and then by the testimony of his people. Verse 22, they kept the feast 
of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The Medo-Persian Empire included Assyria. Uh, Assyria had been conquered by the Babylonians who had been conquered by the Medo-Persians. Why Ezra refers to it here, I can't say, but it again reminds us of God's providence. He didn't start being involved in history all of a sudden in Babylon. No, the former Assyrian Empire was used by him to discipline his people before the Babylonians and before the Persians. And so again, God superintends history without violating our free will. When we hear the phrase, the joy of your Savior, we rightfully think of the joy he desires for us and that abiding in him produces in us. And that's certainly on our minds and hearts. But it can also be the joy we bring to him. In Zephaniah 3.17, we read, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now true, Zephaniah was writing about Jews in the future kingdom on earth, but it establishes that God's people can bring him joy. So we come in on a Sunday morning, let's say, and um, we uh, lift up our voices and we sing. And God says here in Zephaniah, yeah, and guess what? You bring me joy and I sing over you. I sing to you. Can you imagine God singing to you? I mean, we sing to God and we think, you know, God, please, you know, receive that as a, as a praise. God says, yeah, I sing to you. You give me joy. Jesus is gonna one day present us to his father like a bridegroom introducing his bride. Maybe that didn't go too well for you when you brought your fiance home, depending on how weird your parents are, <coughs> my parents. Anyway, but uh, uh, in a, it should have gone well and you had it in your mind, it, it went well. But uh, at anyway, when Jesus presents us to the father, he's gonna be full and overflowing with joy. Dad, look, look at what we did. Look at what I did. Here's, here's my bride. Perfect, complete, without blemish, spotless, just as we promised. It's gonna bring him joy. We need to realize that we can bring joy to our Savior's heart. Certainly, we want the joy that is produced as a fruit of his spirit, but we need to just think that we can bring him joy as well, and it'll put us in a whole nother frame of mind. Who wouldn't want to bring joy to Jesus considering all that he has done? Here's a simple thing. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, you haven't been saved, it would bring Jesus and all of heaven joy for you to get saved. All of heaven rejoices as one sinner gets saved. And certainly God does as well and he will sing over you. For us who are in Christ, ask the Lord where you can bring him more joy as you wait for him to return for you.